Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. I'm Jeremy Cliff, international editor of the New Statesman in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin, senior editor U.S. in Washington D.C. I'm Ida Vok, Europe correspondent in Berlin. It's Thursday, the sixth of January. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs, and every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. This week we look ahead to some of the most critical elections coming up around the world in 2022. Will Lula da Silva dethrone Bolsonaro in Brazil? What's at stake in Sweden's election? I have met the speaker and have asked to be relieved of my duties as prime minister. But I have also told him that I am ready to be Prime Minister in a single-party, social-democratic government. And what of France, or the US midterms? Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. Jeremy, Ido, it's another year, another us, and we have a whole new set of elections to talk about. Um, Listeners, we do want to flag as we head into this, that although we will be discussing elections around the world, and although we think that all of these are important and worth talking about and following, which is why we are flagging them, these are by no means the only elections that are coming up this year. They are not the only important ones. Um, you know, And there will be others that we cover in different episodes of this podcast. But having said all that, here is a taste of some of what we will be watching at the polls around the world this year. Jeremy, why don't you start us off? Well, we've each chosen two elections this year that we want to highlight. And my first one is the Brazilian election, which is on the 2nd of October. If no candidate gets 50% at that first round, there would then be a second round at the end of October. And it looks like a a two-horse race, essentially, between the incumbent, the the far-right president, Jair Bolsonaro, who's been um, in, in office since the start of 2019, who is a sort of reactionary conservative who's kind of political basis is, is in places like the army, among evangelical voters, and originally among big business, and who looked in a strong position until the pandemic struck, but has been um, damaged politically by his very poor handling of, of, of the pandemic. Brazil has had over 600,000 COVID-19 deaths, which is more than any country but the US, and one of the highest per capita death rates of any any country. Um, combined with economic stagnation and, and, and rising inflation, that has 
weakened him significantly. And then his his challenger is likely to be Luis Inacio Lula da Silva, known as Lula, who was the country's president between 2003 and 2010. He's on the sort of, I think you described him as being on the centre-left and is remembered f- fondly by, 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 by some voters for, for what were economic boom years in, in Brazil in which um, social welfare was improved. Um, but he then got caught up in, in the so-called Lava Jato or, or car wash corruption um, scandal, ended up in prison. But his case was overturned last year, which, which freed him up to run again. And, and currently, it looks like Lula is quite comfortably ahead. The latest polls put him in the sort of 40 to 50% range. So almost strong enough to potentially win outright in the first round against Bolsonaro, who's sort of in the 20 to 30% range. Lula's helped also by the fact that Bolsonaro's vote is split by his his own former justice minister, Sergio Moro, running against him. And that, that has drawn some of the kind of pro-business support away from Bolsonaro's um, vote account. Um, so I think it's, it's going to be a really significant one because Bolsonaro has been such a disastrous president of, of Brazil in social and economic terms, but also in the way that he's abused the country's democratic institutions, trashed its um, kind of political norms. Not insignificantly, he's also accelerated the destruction of the Amazon. And so I think it's fair to say it would be a very good thing for, for Brazil and for the world were he to lose power. That does look to be the direction in which the country is going. But then there is this big open question about where the Bolsonaro will try and, quote unquote, pull a Trump. And I mean, this this this, this podcast is going out on the 6th of January. Um, Bolsonaro is very aware of Trump's attempt to defy electoral defeat in the US last year um, and has basically openly said that he will attempt something similar if he loses in the autumn. Uh, he said at one point last year that there were three possibilities for the election. He ends up arrested, killed or victorious. He's flirted in the past with with talking about involving the Brazilian army in politics. And so there is this sort of double question. Firstly, can Lula sustain his lead over Bolsonaro? But then secondly, if he does win, um, what will Bolsonaro do to try and undermine that or, or overturn that that result? So I think it's it's a really important election. It's a, it's a concerning one for many big reasons. And it's one that we'll be watching closely here at the New Statesman. I will jump in next because mine is also related to January 6th um, or the the storming of the Capitol on January 6th. This year, I will be watching the midterm elections. For those of you who are not American or do not closely follow American politics, basically um, every four years, we have a presidential election. However, every two years, members of the House of Representatives are up for re-election. And every six years, members of the Senate are up for re-election. So the midterms are the elections that take place as the name suggests, in the middle of the president's term. We should expect the House of Representatives, which is now narrowly controlled by the Democrats, to flip to the Republican Party. Why should we expect this? It is, it is very difficult for the party that is in power to keep the House. Um, Obama lost the House in and the Senate in 2010. Trump lost the House in 2018 particularly coupled with uh, partisan gerrymandering, which is the redrawing of electoral districts to favor one party, it looks extremely likely that Republicans will retake the House. Why does this matter? Because once they do, it becomes much more difficult for the Biden administration to accomplish any of what it wants to accomplish, um, which it has already had (laughs) trouble doing, even with Democratic control of the House and the Senate. So the Biden administration really has, what, elections are in November, so that's 11 months to get through, for example, 
voting rights legislation, or for another example, the Build Back Better plan, which includes the allocation of money to tackle the climate crisis. To take just the climate change as an example, it's really not true that Biden has one term to prove that he can do something here. He, he really had has two years, and one of those years is now has now passed. I also want to flag that we should remember that over 100 Republican members of the House of Representatives voted not to certify the results of the 2020 presidential election. So in addition to, you know, bipartisan gridlock and sort of the, the business as usual parts of, of Washington, uh, obstruction, et cetera, um, we should expect more of what Jeremy just said we are going to see in, in Brazil, right, which is more casting doubt onto the legitimacy of elections. I mean, we should note that in the Virginia governor's election a little while ago, the Democratic candidate conceded. So I, I think it, it's unfair to say that this is a universal American problem. This is something that's very consciously, however, being stoked by the Republican Party that will be used to their advantage before and after the upcoming midterm elections. So that is one of the elections that I'll be watching. And those are some of the, the components that I think are worth watching. Do you get a sense of urgency from Biden and, and his White House about the limited time remaining to push forward their domestic agenda? I mean, obviously, with Build Back Better, you know, they are at the will of the, the Senate and, and the arithmetic. But more widely, do you get a, a sense that they are going to make the most of, of the time they have left, assuming they do then lose the Congress at, at, at the midterms, to deliver on what he promised in the election? Whether or not they feel a sense of urgency is sort of beside the point. They are not acting with that sense of urgency. Um, one example of this is that the Senate has said, well, we will look at Build Back Better, so this piece of legislation that contains a lot of Biden's domestic agenda. We'll do that after we get to voting rights. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. get get to voting rights. Like, <laughs> what, are, what are we... And by the way, what, what does it mean to tackle voting rights? Are you going to abol- abolish the filibuster and pass this with just Democrats? Or are you going to magically get a Republican on board, which has not happened yet? You know, are you are you just passing it back to some time that's never going to materialize? And and all the while we get closer and closer to the midterms. Is that is that the game plan here? Because if so, I might suggest a different game plan. Right. And listeners, if you want to hear much more on on quite literally the battle for the soul of America, then tune in to Emily's excellent podcast series of that name. The first episode of which is in the New States and World Review feed as we record this. So check that out. And the next episodes are coming up over the next two weeks. That's right. Brilliant. Ida, why don't you give us your first um, election that we're paying attention to? Unsurprisingly, I'm going to be looking at France. France is going to have presidential and legislative elections in April. So the presidential election is the one that's getting the most attention in France and outside. It's a two-round system, so... There are any number of candidates who will be competing in the first round and in the second round, the top two go through and face off. At the moment, we've got a very fractured political scene, as as we've spoken about on this podcast before. We've got a pretty split left, two relatively strong candidates on the far right, a strong candidate of the centre right, obviously Macron, the current incumbent who continues to lead most polls. For a long time, the picture seemed very settled and now it's much more up in the air. And in fact, we've had a good illustration of that this week because there'd been a massive controversy over Macron uh, saying he wanted to piss off the 10% of the French eligible population, which remains unvaccinated, which caused a furore um, across the political spectrum from the far right to the far left, which has lined up to criticize him. 
And I think this is probably going to be one of the sentences and one of the remarks which has come to define Maghorn. It might be the one whose effect is, is most long lasting because it's quite calculated and it cuts to the heart of the most significant debate that we're seeing at, at the moment. And so whether something like that comes along and upends the, the campaign, and I'm sure it will, will potentially affect the race. And then... Um, a couple of weeks after the presidential election, there's going to be legislative elections, which are going to be less closely watched internationally, but which is still going to be really important because France is a semi-presidential system. So the president has a lot of power, but in terms of his or her lawmaking abilities are quite limited. And so a president's ability to pass their agenda depends on having control of parliament, of having a majority in parliament And so irrespective of who wins the presidential election, there will be a closely fought battle for parliament a couple of weeks later, which could have a pretty big impact, especially if the president's party doesn't get a majority, which could happen conceivably because the electorate is so fractured. So it's going to be a very interesting few months in uh, in French politics. As we mentioned last year, on our last discussion episode, I'll be hosting a podcast series where we'll be looking at the upcoming election in depth. So uh, you'll be able to tune into France Elects right here on this podcast feed. You know, you did a very good piece for us, which we will put in the uh, show notes for this episode again, um, on, on the kind of the big questions hanging over the French election. And one of the points was whether or not the left is going to find some sort of unity candidate. Can you just, just briefly sketch for us why the left is looking so weak in this in this in this election campaign i mean it it just really doesn't seem to come up in these sorts of discussions so the the first thing i think is that it's simply divided um there is jean-luc mélenchon who's the leader of france unbowed which is a uh, pretty hard left party the, the strongest performing left-wing party in 2017 there's anne hidalgo who is the socialist party candidate but she is in a doldrum she's polling really badly uh there's Yannick Jadot, who is the leader of the Green Party, he's polling a bit better than Hidalgo, but still nowhere near being in the top uh, three or four candidates. And then you have a few sort of wildcard candidates. There are a couple of can- a couple of smaller candidates on the even harder left than Mélenchon. And then there's uh, Taubi- Christine Taubira, who is a former justice minister under François Hollande, who's very well respected on the left, who has hinted that she might be interested in running. But all of these candidates are just doing quite badly. Even Mélenchon is very far from being able to make it to the runoff round on current polling. So a lot, of, a lot of people are saying that the left needs to agree on a unity candidate, because really... These individual candidates might have a lot uh, separating them, might disagree on the lot, but their voters agree on a lot. And if you actually, you know, sit an Hidalgo voter, a Mélenchon voter, a Jadot voter, and so on in the same room, and you ask them what they agree and what they disagree on, they'll agree on quite a lot. Their candidates might not conceive of being able to to run a joint candidacy to get behind a, a single a single candidate, but those voters will agree on a lot. And so one of the big questions is whether the left bluntly is going to get its act together and agree on some more unity than we're seeing at the moment, because if not, it looks like a pretty bad wipeout. Indeed. Uh, Well, uh, as you say, 
much more to come on that in France Elect. I'm, I'm looking forward to that very much myself. Um, my second election is another um, Latin American one, and this is Colombia's election, which is um, will be just after the French election at the, on the 29th of May. Colombia, also like uh, Brazil and France, has a, a sort of two-round system if no candidate wins the majority in the first round. And there it's a contest between sort of establishment cent- centrists and the left, um, the current um, president, Ivan Duque, um, is very unpopular. Um, his administration was mired in a major protest movement last year over a an unpopular tax reform. And in any case, he can't run again because he's already served the maximum, which is two terms in office. So the election will likely be a contest between a centrist candidate, probably one of Sergio Fajardo or Alejandro Graviria, um, who go to a primary in the spring ahead of the um, election itself. Uh, and then uh, Gustavo Petro on the left. Uh, Petro is a former mayor of Bogota um, and is very closely associated with the protest movement that um, took to the streets last spring, uh, particularly in the Colombian capital. And I think I think this is this is a significant election for two main reasons. The first is that Petro seems to have quite a good chance of winning, which would be yet another example of a Latin American government falling to the left. There was a sort of wave of, of left of centre governments in, in, in Latin America in the 2000s. That was then sort of pushed back by the right in many countries um, in the sort of 2010s. And what we've seen in the few recent elections is, is the left in Latin America pushing back. You know, last year bought wins for leftists in Honduras, um, Peru, and most recently Chile, as we discussed in this election, and the, the win for um, left-wing Gabriel Boric. It looks like, well, notwithstanding the, the, the risks to the electoral system in Brazil, that, that Lula will most likely win there. There are already left of centre governments of various types and hues in, in Bolivia, Argentina, Mexico, and of course, in a sort of very dictatorial form in, in Venezuela. And so you could you could see Colombia too fall to the left, at which point almost all of the major Latin American countries will be on the left, which I think is, is significant, even though there are different reasons and different drivers of, of that shift in different countries. And the second reason why I think it's, 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 it's important is, is a related one, and that's that um, in Petro, you'd have yet another electoral victory that emerges from a protest movement. We've seen a, a sort of wave of protests, particularly in Latin America, particularly in some of these, um, as we've discussed before in World Review, mid, mid-income countries that have sort of been, where living standards have been squeezed economically and by the pandemic in recent years. And I think it would be significant because Pedro, like, for example, Boric in Chile, would be another example of a leader and winning an election on the back of a, a profile built through the protest movement. So I think that's that's going to be worth keeping an eye on too. I think your point on all these countries having gone to the right and now going back to the left is so interesting because I think we have this tendency when a group of countries go to one end of the political spectrum to sort of look at it as though like, that's it. <laughs> I guess they're lost to the right now or that's it. They're progressive forever. Um, and this is just such a neat, in the course of not that many years, such a neat illustration of how that's not that's not true. Yeah, it is, and it's. I think one has to be careful about how much one one describes that sort of thing as a as a single coherent phenomenon. And I I talked about this in a, in a sort of in a short essay I did for the New Statesman, which we can also put in the show notes last year about about the shifts in Latin American politics. And it is it is worth stressing that the the, the leftists in power in Latin America vary enormously. So you have uh, Maduro in Venezuela, who's a kind of a horrific dictator. You have sort of someone like. Um, Lopez Obrador in Mexico, who's sort of 
a kind of slightly heterodox populist, albeit kind of with roots on the right. You have a sort of centre-left government, quasi-Peronist government in, in Argentina. Um, so that the, the, they come in different hues, but you're right. It's a reminder that the pendulum can sort of always swing back. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print or both for as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. With that, Emily, what's your second um, election of note for the year ahead? I'll be watching whether the pendulum swings back in Hungary. I mentioned this last week, so I'll be I'll be pretty brief. But basically, um, Viktor Orban, who was in power in the as prime minister in the late '90s and early 2000s, then left power, and then has been back since 2010. He and his Fidesz are going to try to cling on and, and stay in power. Uh, his opponent is um, Pedro Markizai. If I mispronounce that, I apologize. He is a small town mayor who presents as a conservative. Which is interesting because it means, you know, had, for example, the mayor of Budapest been the candidate, it, you, you can see how this very easily could have become a culture war election. You know, Orban and, 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 the, and the countryside against the, the big city players in Budapest. Some of the wind has been taken out of those sails. As I said last week, I still think that, that, that Fidesz will, will stay in power um, because it's one, because they do still enjoy some genuine popularity and two, because they... They have the system on their side. The media, um, the you know, Jeremy spoke about electoral reforms that have been passed to the advantage of the ruling party. But 
you know, I, I said that I think it, the culture war angle will be less effective. I will be interested to watch what angle Orban and Fidesz do take. I, I think we can expect a lot of discussion about the protection of Hungarian sovereignty from the European Union, from American interference. Although interestingly, side note, they, they warned about foreign interference and then Donald Trump endorsed Orban. So, you know, perhaps perhaps not all uh, opining from Americans was was unwelcome in Hungary. Um, last time, Orban gave a rally in which he was quoted as saying, we're fighting an enemy who's different from us, you know, rootless and speculator. And this was widely taken to be an anti-Semitic dog whistle, but also to be about George Soros. Will they, the Hungarian-born billionaire philanthropist, will they double down there? We're still in a pandemic. He's been in power for quite a long time now. What is the argument going to be as they head into elections in April or May, but it's expected to be in April. All right, Ido, before we head to our listener question, what is your last election? I'll be watching what will happen in Sweden. So Sweden's going to a general election in September. That's a proportional system, so it's very straightforward. The proportion of the vote you get is the number of seats that you get. So the first female prime minister of Sweden, twice actually, the uh, the first woman to be uh, Prime Minister of Sweden twice because she led the government for about eight hours before resigning and then being confirmed again, Magdalena Andersson, um, will be hoping to lead the centre-left Social Democrats to another victory, to another term in Parliament. But she's facing some difficulties from her right in particular. The moderate party led by Ulf Christensen and also the uh, far-right Swedish Democrats uh, have been polling quite well, and the some of the social democrats' traditional allies, such as the, as the Greens, um, appear to be below the electoral threshold to the, thre- the threshold to make it into parliament. So, Christensen is seeming quite bullish on his chances of uh, dislodging Anderson and the social democrats from power, which would obviously be a setback to this uh, idea that the centre left is making. A modest comeback across Europe. I think all the Scandinavian countries are led by, or most of them at least, are led by centre-left governments, um, obviously with quite significant variation, but nonetheless, and the centre-right coming back to power in Sweden would be uh, a blow to that. And more broadly, we've seen across Europe, the centre-left begin to actually do quite well in some instances. So obviously, we had Germany, where the SPD is now back in power after, uh, I think, four Merkel terms. And so if the Social Democrats manage to hold on to power, that will be perhaps a good sign that the centre-left is in better health across Europe than perhaps some expected a few years ago. And another another point of European relevance there that I'd quickly throw in is, is this question of whether or not there is any sort of cooperation or de facto cooperation between the centre-right i.e. the moderates and the far-right Sweden Democrats, there's been a sort of general consensus on mainstream Swedish politics that one shouldn't cooperate with the Sweden Democrats, but the sort of the cordon sanitaire has been fraying, particularly in some in some lo- sort of local politics, and, and sort of whether or not you get a, a government led by the moderates supported in some way by the Sweden Democrats. Obviously, there's no chance of a coalition or anything, but sort of some sort of informal sort of agreement would be worth watching and then significant because a lot of centre-right parties are grappling with that question elsewhere in Europe too. To what extent do you, if at all, cooperate with the far right? Um, so yes, that's definitely one to watch too. All right. Certainly one worth watching. But now it is time to hear from you. 
with a section that we like to call You Ask Us. You Ask Us. All right. Not our most synchronized, but that's okay. Um, this question comes to us from Alfredo via Twitter. And the question is, what is it going to take to prevent another Marcos from occupying the office of the president in the Philippines? This is a reference to the political dynasty. Jeremy, we will let you take this one. Yeah. So this is this is another important election in the year, also in, in May. Um, and the question gets at, as you say, the Marcos dynasty of the former Philippine dictator Ferdinand Marcos, who, who led the country from 1965 to 1986. Now, his son, um, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., also known as Bongbong Marcos, is um, running for the presidency of the Philippines. The, the incumbent, a sort of right-wing populist, who, who some have called a sort of Filipino Trump, Rodrigo Duterte, is standing down because one can only serve one term as president in the Philippines. And he's he's known for a very populist leadership style, a very poor handling of the pandemic, and, and I think most of all, an extremely violent war on drugs that has killed, by some estimates, something like 20,000 people. So Duterte is stepping down. Um, Marcos Jr. is in the lead in polls to replace him at the election. I think that the latest put him on 53%. And kind of a, a related dynastic element to this is that running for the vice presidency, which is actually a separate election in, in the Philippines, is Marcos's de facto running mate, who is the daughter of Rodrigo Duterte, the incumbent, so Sara Duterte, who, who's going for the vice presidency. So it looks like all kind of unless something big changes, the country will be, as um, uh, Alfredo asks, uh, back in the hands of, of, of the Marcos family. I think the, the best chance of stopping Marcos is um, a candidate called Leni Robredo, who is running on a platform of, among other things, restoring human rights, which have been badly trampled on under Duterte. But she's she's only on 20% in the polls at the moment, so it would have a long way to claw back. Probably, probably the best chance of stopping Marcos would be if he's actually um, disqualified, which is a small possibility given he, he has a tax evasion conviction that some are seeking to use to disqualify him. But I think who, whoever wins in, in the Philippines, it's, it's significant not just because of this extremely intensive dynastic politics there, and, and this isn't the first such election in Filipino political history, but also because of the geopolitics of the Philippines. Um, Duterte, kind of as president, originally flirted with China, which obviously is seeking to, to establish its influence in that sort of South China Sea basin, um, where the Philippines is a very relevant player. Um, but there was a sort of a sense that, that China didn't particularly deliver on its side of the bargain. And, and Duterte then has sort of pivoted back to the US. So I think it's going to be interesting both because of the, the, the internal dynamics, but also because the Philippines is such an important, quote unquote, pivot state in, in that contest in the, in the Indo-Pacific. So Alfredo, it does look likely that Marcos would um, will win, but it's not totally certain. So let's see. Thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. You can send yours in to podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or by tweeting at us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us next Monday for an interview with writer Peter Pomerantsev on Russia, Ukraine and historical memory. And subscribe to our World Review newsletter at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review. As ever, if you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please like, um, subscribe, rate us, leave a review and, and do tell your friends about us. It's It's a... Um, a cliche of these sorts of podcasts but it really does help spread the word and if you're enjoying what we have to say about world affairs and know people who you think would be interested then please do consider taking the time to mention us to them our producer has been Mae Robson thank you for listening and until next time 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So, can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.